Hi there, I'm Nagapriya and welcome to my podcast. Uh, in the most recent podcasts, I've been exploring a series of texts by the Japanese Pure Land teacher Shinran with my friend Daimati. And we've been looking at three texts where Shinran comments on other works. And in this episode, we're looking at that final text, which is called Notes on the Inscriptions of Sacred Scrolls. So it was common for people to have in their house a sacred scroll that would be their main uh, shrine piece. And um, that would have an image of uh, Amida, sometimes of the Nimbutsu. And there would be inscribed on this sometimes uh, a sacred text. So Shinran gathered together a series of these uh, texts and comments on them. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. And this is the final podcast on, on this series of three texts. So going back to the notes on the inscriptions on sacred scrolls. Right. Um, actually going back to the first page where he quotes the, uh, the primal vow, I think, uh, which is the 18th. Uh, and he says, um, entrusting is to be free of doubt, believing deeply and without any doubled mindedness that the Tathagata's primal vow is true and real. Uh, this entrusting with sincere mind then is that arising from the vow in which Amida urges every being through the ten quarters entrust yourself to my vow which is true and real it does not arise from the hearts and minds of foolish beings of self-power right and I mean I find found that quite striking because yeah, entrusting is to be free of doubt. Okay, but how does that happen? You know, um, uh, believing deeply and without any double-mindedness. Again, how do you do that? Um, right. Uh, that that's that for me is the puzzle, um, really. Right. You know, it, it's all very well hearing Amida saying, "Entrust yourself to my vow," but how do you do that entrusting? Um, because it does not arise from the hearts of minds of foolish beings of self-power, apparently. So how does it arise? Yeah, and, and I wonder, getting back to, to something that uh, we were talking about earlier, whether, um, well, the way to do that is simply to become aware that, that you are of a double mind and, and that awareness itself, if you have, as you say, Parts, you know, if you if you've put yourself thoroughly within the framework of this story, then being aware that you are of a double mind, that you are, um, well, that that you're that you're reciting or thinking the nembutsu um, in self-power mode. I mean, if you can become aware that you're doing that, I wonder if that's sufficient to uh, to dispel doing it that way. Right, so you're saying that in a way it's through undoing self-power, if you like. You, you, you just kind of abandon self-power and then uh, other power naturally arises, something like that. 
I, when I read this stuff, sometimes the, the, first of all, I get this idea that our condition is that so far, like now, we haven't been grasped never to be abandoned because we haven't realized Jinjin. And that's uh, a moment or a realization or a condition uh, that could happen now or in the future. But other times when I'm reading Shinran, I get the sense that what he's actually saying is that has already happened. Mm -hmm. uh, that has already happened. And all you need to do is recognize that has already happened. Right. Um, so in that sense, in a sense, even your doubt doesn't even matter. Uh, because your doubt, because dispelling doubt doesn't actually, um, it doesn't actually make anything new happen because it's already happened. Um, something like that. I mean, clearly it's something to do with time. And we, you know, we tend to think in terms of time and a sequence of time. <clears throat> and my sense is that this is talking about something that breaks out of that sequence of time. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so even if you talk about the idea of realizing Shinjin, you're creating some kind of um, uh, uh, duality, really, I guess. It is, it, yeah, a duality uh, between me as I am now and me in the moment that Shinjin arises and I've been grasped never to be abandoned. Mm -hmm. And that duality is created, I think, on the basis of a self-power mind. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, because I think in terms of self-power, because I'm a, a foolish being, I conceptualize <laughs> this idea that me as I am at the moment haven't been, you know, uh, uh, grasped never to be abandoned by the vow of Amida. Mm -hmm. And in the future, uh, hopefully that will happen. Um, and maybe that will happen. I might think if I stop, if I, if I let go of my foolish attempts to liberate myself and just open myself up to, to Amitabha. But again, that all sounds like self power, doesn't it? It sounds mm -hmm. like I'm doing it. That's an effort that I make, or it's to do with me or something like that. And, uh, what the constant message here is that no, you know, the self power uh, is not, is not the answer. Uh, it's when self power uh, dissolves or when, when self power is put on one side uh, that Shinjin arises. So I think what, what I'm trying to say is that uh, I'm wondering whether a way of understanding what Shinrin, Shinran is saying is that we have been eternally enlightened mm. or we are eternally enlightened or something mm. like that. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds, it sounds as if that's his, um, his message and, 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 and that even, even the awareness that arises that we are, um, doing something in self power mode is something that's, that's possible because Amitabha has given us the, the ability to be aware of that. 
but you know, that even the, the, the recognition of our um, not doing things in the right spirit comes from the right spirit itself. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, and if you keep following through with that, what what I get from that is this this constant critique of uh, the egocentric attitude and 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 the idea that you're responsible for your liberation or you're responsible for the good things that happen. Mm. And I, I think there's something very very good about that 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 kind of constant undermining of the possibility of appropriating uh, spiritual practice or um, spiritual transformation and saying it's mine, I developed it, you know, I don't know, I'm a stream entrant, let's say, right. uh, or, or, or something of that sort. And I, I find that very compelling, that, yeah. that constantly undermining the, the tendency to refer back to self-power and think that self-power is responsible uh, for uh, uh, deliverance. I'm using mm. quite a lot of uh, non-Buddhist words here, but um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was um, there was a, one thing that really interested me in um, where Shinran comments on the inscription on the portrait of Shandao. Um, uh, which apparently is found at some temple. Yeah. And uh, it mentions this idea of repenting. Uh, so uh, it says, to say, to say the Buddha's six-character name is to praise the Buddha. It is right. to repent. It is to awaken the aspiration for birth and turn over the virtue. Um, so I, I found that quite striking. And then he comments on that. And he says, to say Namu Amida Butsu is to repent all the karmic evil one has committed since the beginningless past. Right, right. Um, so what I thought was interesting about that is that, okay, so you're reciting the name. Uh, uh, and if you're reciting the name, that would seem to be evidence. I, I'd be interested in your view on this. That would seem to be evidence that you have already been grasped by Amida's vow. You have been uh, 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 you're, you have been reborn into the Pure Land because if you hadn't been, you wouldn't be reciting the name. Um, mm -hmm. That that's well, that's one way of interpreting what he's saying. But then the other side of that is maybe with this uh, great joy and connection uh, with Amida comes this awareness of your karmic evil and repentance i found that very very striking that idea um so it's not like that all of a sudden you think oh i'm great kind of thing you know because i'm at one with amida you know i've got the same mind as amida i'm going to be enlightened nothing to worry about uh mm. it's actually in that very um recognition or, or realization is this sort of awakening to our, our evil karma, to our, to our bad conduct, and a, and a repentance that goes along with that. You know, I find that really, really striking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I like that, um, 
that passage, all the roots of good adorn the pure land. Know that the Buddha has gathered all roots of good into the three syllables, Amida, so that to say the name Namo Mirabutsa is the adorning, is to adorn the pure land. That's quite a beautiful idea, isn't it? Yeah, such as Master Zhu Young's praise of Shandao. So that, yeah, I, I, I liked that, that phrase that, that it's sort of like adorning, I mean, the pure land is already there. And, and all you're doing is just kind of hanging some decorations up, you know, adorning the, it's to, to say the name is to adorn the pure land. That's a very interesting uh, uh, image. I mean, this really, this whole um, series of things that we've been reading in Shenran, he really proceeds by imagery, doesn't he? Right. Um, I mean, he kind of conjures up these very rich um, images and and uh, not even necessarily analogies. I mean, he uses an analogy, but there's really remarkably little argumentation or in the, in the sense of convincing you of anything. It's, 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 uh, it's more, it's more, it's more like a, making a, a painting or a tapestry or something like right. that. Yeah. And instead of, hmm. You know, sort of convincing you that you really ought to, you really ought to like the Mona Lisa. You just see the thing and, and you just, say wow <laughs> that is a, a very very interesting analogy uh, that you've made there yeah that it's not a, a philosophical argument in in the way that we might understand mm. uh, but it, it's kind of an invitation to pay attention to something isn't it right. like you say somebody saying you know have a look at this picture over here right. uh, and see what effect it has on you uh, or just just right. contemplate that picture and see what it has yeah. on you yeah. That's, uh, that's really quite quite interesting. Yeah, all of a sudden it makes me, um, uh, it, you mentioned the Mona Lisa, but it makes me think of Rothko, um, who, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have enjoyed quite a lot of Rothko's paintings. And in, um, in the Tate Modern in London, there is a Rothko room mm. uh, with a series of paintings that I believe are called the Seagram murals because uh, they were going to be put on a wall in some building owned by this company, I think, called Seagram. And for whatever reason, I can't remember quite why now, Rothko decided that that would not happen. Mm. And I think he eventually donated them, uh, I think, to the to the tape. Uh, but the, the, thing in, the interesting thing about those uh, paintings is that they form like, um, there's one on each wall. So it kind of encloses you because they're really, really big. Um, mm. And so you have this sense of just being kind of immersed uh, in these huge paintings. Um, and they're abstract paintings as well. So there's no, you know, there's no clear um, images to see. But you have this sense of kind of enter in, entering into something, you know, that, that somehow you enter into this uh, mood or this atmosphere that, that, the paintings kind of invite you into mm. um, and you know that 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 seems a bit similar to me uh, to what you're talking about you know you're not uh, you're not analyzing the painting but you're kind of entering into it right 
and that right. has an effect on you you know it it changes your consciousness and i've certainly experienced that in the in the, in that room it, it they do impact on you um, mm -hmm. yeah the colors they i mean for me it kind of draws me into a, a very kind of reflective contemplative type uh mood mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yesterday i saw a a kind of a documentary of, well it was a, a a travelogue or something like this of some Scottish people who went down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, and they were they were they were following the um, they were following the itinerant. Well, you you have no choice if you go down the Colorado River, you have no choice but to follow the <laughs> the the path that John Wesley Powell made, but they they were doing it kind of studying Powell's diaries and seeing what he had said about these various things that they had encountered. And there is a, um, there is a place where um, many, many thousands of years ago, um, there was a volcanic eruption somewhere and a, a big flow of lava poured over the side of the Grand Canyon and fell into the, into the river. And, um, all of that lava in the bottom of the river eventually solidified, and uh, and and so it's 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 made some extremely rough um, currents, rapids, and so and and it's um, I think John Wesley Powell may have lost some people in these in these in some boats in these rapids, but to this day they're ex even though the Colorado River is not as wild as it was in John Wesley Powell's time, because downstream is 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 the Hoover Dam, huge huge dam, um, that has made the river a little bit more tame, but it's still an extremely frightening stretch of water to get through in a boat, and and um, leading this this expedition, there was one one. American guy who has a lot of experience on that river and knows exactly how to get through these rapids. And he was saying about one Scottish guy, he said, I'm really afraid of, um, let's, I, I think his name was Michael, it doesn't matter, but it's, I'm really afraid of Michael because he is so afraid that when he gets into a tight situation, he absolutely will not follow anybody else's directions. He just feels he has to do it himself and, and he gets into trouble. And sure enough, this guy, when he was going through the water, he started to just ignore what everybody else was telling him he should be doing and started trying to do things himself. And, and his boat was just totally filled with water and he lost control of his oar. He, he had a kind of a steering oar at the back of the boat. So two people were rowing backwards and then the person who's steering um, is facing forward. They can see what's coming and they have to hold on to this, this very long oar that they use as a kind of rudder. And um, he lost control of it. And, and I mean, he d it fell out of his hands and uh, and I think just floated down the river by itself. And eventually, um, 
he was totally out of control. But the river itself, the currents just took him safely through the, through the river, <laughs> you know, got, got him through. And at the end of this, this thing they showed, they showed him, he, he was just sitting, he was, he was, he was sobbing because he was so terrified by the experience. I mean, he was just, and, and these other people came by and hugged him and cons consoled him. But um, uh, I guess he, he felt that he had really learned <laughs> that you cannot let your fear take control of you and make you feel that you're going to do this by yourself. Um, but that even if, even if something disastrous happens, somehow you'll be okay. It was, it's, it, it seemed to be a very powerful uh, experience for him. And I, w I was very moved by that because I, I've done some, some boating on, um, on, not the Colorado River, but a river that flows into the Colorado River that has similar kinds of conditions. And it's, it's really true that uh, you just have to let the river take you through the course. And the more you do, the less likely it is that you'll success, succeed. You, you know, you just pretty much have to, let, have to do it, have to let the river take you. Um, you have to surrender to the current. You do. <laughs> you have to surrender to the current. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when you begin to try to say, well, I think, I think it would be better to go that way, you know, um, then you, you try to steer your boat and you, very often you'll end up in trouble. Wow, what an incredible story, uh, Diane. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, I, I used to, after doing a couple of trips on the on the river, I, I, I started thinking. Almost everybody who who does a spiritual practice could benefit by doing a seven day river trip. Um, you know, I, I I say seven days because that's how long the trip I was on was, and I don't think I've ever. It's aside from some retreats, I mean, I've seen re retreats in which people on day one were very different from the way they were on day seven after they emerged. I mean, it, um, but but I saw the same kinds of things on on these river trips. You'd have people who were just, um, you know, the the first reporting in. Um, kind of arrogant, kind of cocky, or, or, or else maybe the opposite of that, just, gosh, I don't know if I can possibly do this. And after seven days of dealing with the river and the currents of the river and going through rapids, the people who are arrogant are really humbled, and the people who are terrified are really self-confident in, in a way that they weren't before. <laughs> so it's, you, you sometimes see that. On, I've, I've been on a few retreats where I've seen that kind of thing, same thing. Although on retreats, you very, you know, I don't, I don't think there are very many people who go into retreats feeling kind of arrogant as much as as you might find in a 
in a river trip because everybody's kind of, you know, some of the people are really very macho and thinking that they can really yeah. do this. But I think but, the, the arrogance in relation to uh, spiritual practice is a lot more subtle, I think. It is, yeah. Um, and, you know, well, it consists in a lot of what Shinran talks about, you know, this idea that through my own efforts, you know, I, I will attain enlightenment. Um, right. And uh, I don't know what you think about this, but uh, I sometimes, many people say that they're not sure if they could get enlightened in this life, but they're optimistic that they could at least attain stream entry or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I find that idea, um, I don't know, something that doesn't sit right with me uh, about that idea. I think partly because it seems to me structured on a self-power vision, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the vision of my efforts and my efforts are going to bring about this result. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tend to think that uh, that enlightenment is to do with another level of functioning. Um, so the idea, if you like, that I could attain stream entry doesn't really make any sense um is what i think because because it's actually the breaking through or breaking down of the tendency to think in terms of self and so if that actually happened you wouldn't say something like i've attained stream entry and neither would you say i don't think uh, stream entry has been attained, which is the way that some people sidestep this idea. Uh, right. I, I just don't think you would think like that. That's my feeling about it. That's that's not how you would uh, relate to whatever was happening. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think in in addition to I mean I I, I quite agree with with what you're saying. In in addition to that, I would say that I, I think that these, um, this whole notion of the, you know, the, the different levels of being a, an Arya Pudgala um, is a heuristic. And like any heuristic, eventually you just have to throw it away. I mean, it just, you know, it just doesn't really, um, it doesn't really accurately re- reflect anybody's experience. Maybe, I don't think <laughs> maybe it does. Maybe there are textbook examples of people who attained stream entry, never, never, you know, regressed, and and then and then wrestled with with the other um, the other fetters and eventually emerged mm-hmm. in our heart. Maybe that happens. Well, and it seems to me the idea of levels of attainment like that, it's a a structure uh, based on self-reference, you know, is based on um, ego, really, um, it yeah. seems to me. Uh, and so it obviously at some point must surely break down, you would think. What right. I'm trying to say is that it's only a model that can make sense while we're thinking in terms of self-power and personal attainment. And if that breaks down, then that model is no longer really going to make any, any sense. Mm-hmm. Relating that a little bit to um, Shinran's way of thinking, what I see uh, him doing sometimes is that, well, first of all, 
he uh, he equates Shinjin with being born in the Pure Land. That's the first thing that he does. Uh, so he kind of collapses the uh, the time, the space of time uh, between uh, realizing Shinjin and being born in the Pure Land, because in many of the texts they talk about being born in the Pure Land as happening uh, at death, you know, or or after after death. So he first of all collapses that uh, that space, but then what I read sometimes is that then he collapses the space between being born in the pure land and becoming enlightened uh, so that then they all seem to somehow become the same thing um, uh, or at least the idea of um, a space of time a process of time is kind of erased mm. so then it kind of uh, becomes that to, to realize Shinjin is to become enlightened. Uh, because, in a way, you're well, because he often says you're destined to become enlightened or something like that. But actually, just looking at a line here, one realizes the equal of enlightenment and supreme nirvana. That's one of, right. uh, one of the lines. Um, and he says the equal of enlightenment is the stage of the truly settled. Uh, which is equivalent to to Shinjin. Mm. Uh, he then goes on to say, um, know that through the fulfillment of the vow of attaining Nirvana without fail, one is certain to realize great Nirvana. So sometimes he kind of talks about that Nirvana somehow will be fulfilled in the future. But sometimes he, he seems to talk about it as though kind of it's all present right now. If you like, mm -hmm. I, I suppose it's kind of a an idea or a bit beyond time. Maybe we're coming towards the end of it today, aren't we? Um, there was a whole other area that interested me about the idea of the easy practice, um, uh, which is one of the ways that they talk about the um, uh, the nimbutsu, the the single practice. It's the easy practice, and the hard practice is was to do it all by yourself. Right. And he talked, but he says, know that this is the sudden teaching, the sudden teaching yeah. it is the easy practice. Uh, and I mean, that takes me again to this idea of something that's outside of time or beyond time, the sudden teaching, you know, mm -hmm. so it's not something that's the result of, you know, decades of practice, if you like, is something that uh, emerges suddenly or in the sense of outside of time. But the easy practice is, yeah, it's easy to recite obviously and to rely on the um the primal vow but there's a kind of i think there's a kind of little trick in there somewhere uh because yeah it's the easy practice but it's only easy if you can believe it or if you can accept it um mm. and what if you don't uh that's it that's the difficult part right that the, the uh, term sudden is is uh, is often a translation into English of of the um, well the Japanese I can't remember what the Japanese word is but that in itself is is a translation of Sanskrit word yugapat and 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 which is which means all all at once everything happens all at once um, so. When two things happen, 
simultaneously. They're, they're called the yoga pats, and when they happen in, in a sequence, one after another, then they're called uh, krama, kramena. And, and um, one, one of the, uh, th this is referring back to something you were saying earlier, one of the um, dimensions of Yugapat is, is not only that something is happening simultaneously, but it's, it's always happening, it's always present. So that, so that when Buddha nature is said to be Yugapat, it's not something that comes into being. It's not something that's born. It's something that has always been there and always will be there. So it's, it's uh, you know, this brings us back to some references that come up in this, well, in, in, the, in the section of Nagarjuna about um, the unproduced, you know, Anutpada. Um, so maybe we can we can talk about that a little bit next time. We we haven't really talked about much of anything after the the inscription and in praise of Prince Shotoku. Um, maybe we can sort of take that as a as a marking place and.